It is just over a year since South Africa had to succumb to what was considered one of the most draconian national lockdowns as a result of the uncertainties regarding the COVID-19 virus. A year later, what effect has this lockdown had on South Africa's labour market? Who is it that bore the biggest burden? And what does it mean with the potential third wave looming? Good day and welcome to Ursa's podcast series. I'm your host, Margot G. And in today's podcast, we are joined by Timothy Kohler from the Development Policy Research Unit at the University of Cape Town School of Economics. Today, Tim will be sharing some of his findings from his research recently published as a working paper in the DPRU. While we suspected that South Africa's stringent lockdown would have a severe impact on economic growth and employment levels, Tim shares his research on estimating the causal employment effects of the relevant component of South Africa's national lockdown. Welcome, Tim. It is an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. So for the listeners that do not know you, what brought you to this area of research? Yeah, thank you, Margot. Thank you so much for having me. Um, like I said earlier, I'm a big fan of podcasts, so it's great to be involved in one. What brought me to this area of research? Well, I wasn't always interested in economics at all, actually. When I started studying at university, like we discussed earlier, I went into a classical music degree at Stellenbosch. Um, and to put a long story short, that didn't work out. Uh, ended up dropping out. <laughs> uh, working in the scene, in the music scene for a while, uh, ended up being in a few bands. Somehow we got a slot at uh, Opikopi Festival one year, oh, which wow. was absolutely insane, but great. And then long story short, got back into commerce, moved back down to uh, Stellenbosch to study BCom, did my honors and masters there in economics. And now I find myself at uh, UCT uh, working for the uh, DPRU. Um, and concurrently doing my uh, PhD for which this work forms part of. And uh, you know what, growing up um, in retrospect, uh, I've always had a deep, deep concern for the blatantly obvious extreme levels of uh, inequality uh, on multiple uh, sort of levels that we observe in the country and have seen for decades. And I've always had a very keen interest into understanding why it came about and how it reproduces and what we can do about it. So uh, my research in that light primarily focuses on understanding uh, the extreme levels of poverty and inequality in South Africa, primarily through a labor economics lens. Wonderful. So definitely a link with musicians and numbers, they say. And uh, Opikopi was a wonderful festival. Takes me back to some very good years of my life. <laughs> And um, what a me pleasure too, to have too. you! <laughs> what a pleasure to have you with us. And I think, you know, it's also a lot of our musicians who understand the uh, those deep levels of societal issues on a, you know, on a very personal level. And I think it's wonderful that we can now have you with us doing good economic research. And especially your latest research, which I find very, very interesting. So, what piqued me about your latest working paper? is that you take us beyond the descriptive nature of understanding the national lockdown policy towards a more direct causal link between parts of the national lockdown policy and effects on the labor market. Now, as we'll go into in quite a bit of detail, causality is one of those words we use very carefully in economics and uh, hence I'm very interested in your, uh, your work here. But um, before we speak about the causality, could you run us through some of the descriptive stats you found looking at this question and tell us a bit about your paper? Yes, Yasha. So we've been working on this paper since we got the second quarter data from Stats SA uh, for 2020, the QLFS last year. 
Um, so in the paper, we uh, primarily use the uh, quarterly labor force survey data, sample based representative household survey data. That's, that's to say, collect every quarter to examine primarily the labor market. And we use that to estimate uh, key figures like our unemployment rate. So we've been working on this thing, I'd say, for probably between eight and 10 months now. And I worked on it with great colleagues, uh, Professor Harun Borat, who's the director of the DPRU, and uh, he's a lecturer in the School of Economics at the University of Cape Town, and he's also on the uh, President Ramaphosa's uh, um, Economic Advisory Council, that's wow. the phrase. And my colleague Robert Hill, who's also a lecturer in the department and a researcher at the DPRU, as well as Ben Stanwicks, who's a senior researcher there. So yeah, we've been working on this paper for a long time and have been eager to get it out, but not without its obstacles, of course. Uh, key takeaways for me, uh, looking at the descriptive statistics before going into any uh, causal relationships, I'd say would be unaggregate, uh, as was widely expressed in the media, was the aggregate drop in employment in the number of people employed decreased by more than 2 million from quarter one to quarter two which is essentially a 14% decrease or represents about 10 years, the last 10 years of employment growth in the country where we wow. employment grew by just about 2 million. So big takeaway. Um, what's perhaps even more concerning and reflective of lockdown policy uh, is the even larger decrease in the number of job seekers and the number of uh, officially unemployed by the narrow definition. Uh, 2.7 million less people looking for work which is a 40% decrease from about 7 million people. And even more characteristic about the lockdown policy would be the even larger in absolute terms increase in inactivity in the number of people who are considered economically inactive, which is uh, more than 5 million people in the space mm -hmm. of one quarter became economically inactive. That's a yeah 33% increase. It's not necessarily unsurprising, um, or it's not necessarily surprising, sorry, given that the lockdown policy restricted, you know, every non-essential, any non-essential activity outside the home. So it restricted both the ability of job seekers and job losers to engage in the labor market. So yeah. the last aggregate measure I'd say, which is of interest would be the big decrease in the official unemployment rate, which we know reduced from about 30% in quarter one to 23% in quarter two which is the lowest unemployment rate South Africa has had at least since 2008 roundabout. And of course, this is a key indicator that we use to measure the health of the labor market, but it's misleading, of course, if we observe it by itself. Um, you know, anyone considering a drop in unemployment uh, solely by itself would be like, oh, cool, the labor market is doing good. Um, meanwhile, we're experiencing this unprecedented pandemic and lockdown. Um, yes. So this decrease in the unemployment rate, anyone who's you know, familiar with labor market definitions will know that it's simply a definitional consequence. Um, it's measured as the number of searching unemployed, which we know decreased, as a proportion of the labor force, which is simply the sum of the number of employed people and the number of searching unemployed people. Now, the number of unemployed people decreased by 2.7 million, the, where the number of the labor force collectively decreased by 5 million. So simple maths, denominator decreased more than the numerator, hence the big reduction. So not a consequence of stats is a <laughs> messing with the data. <laughs> I think they've been incredibly cautious, um, but yeah, really just a definitional consequence. We have to consider, you know, uh, a lot of different characteristics of the labor market together to get a, 
holistic understanding um, of what's going. Yes, I remember. Uh, now, yes. One. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say I remember chatting uh, to. After you. After you. <laughs> I was just saying I I remember chatting to a gentleman in a previous podcast at the time, and it did create a lot of confusion. Those numbers, and he reckoned that the correct um, unemployment rate would have been around thirty eight percent if we had to adjust for the sort of that searching factor that that you mentioned so it is interesting and definitely a definition at play but yes as Absolutely, <laughs> as you saying, yeah um you know what's what's really interesting regarding that expanded versus narrow definition um sure arguably the expanded is more relevant when we want to consider um a larger group but interestingly from quarter one to quarter two last year the expanded definition of unemployment didn't change much uh, it was relatively constant and this is primarily because the number of discouraged workers didn't change. Most people who were who lost their jobs and shifted from employment to unemployment, or people who were previously looking for jobs, uh, both those groups shifted into inactivity rather than discouragement, which uh, is a distinction that I can't remember right now. Yes. But yeah, uh, hence that uh, definition of unemployment didn't really change much at all. Very interesting. You know, having 2.2 million people losing their jobs is equivalent to 10 years of job creation. This sounds very concerning and definitely raises our eyebrows. Your research, however, estimated the causal employment effects on South Africa's national lockdown. With causality, we usually require treatment and a control group. So how did you go about this and which data did you use? Sure, yeah. So uh, like I previously uh, said briefly, we used the QLFS data from Stats uh, which is again its representative individual level household uh, survey data. It's a sample of about usually um, between 60 and 70,000 people in about 30,000 households in the country, and it's representative by a number of uh, yeah number of variables. And we used this individual level micro data, and we employed a quasi experimental technique uh, to estimate the causal effect. In brief, what we did was this technique, it's called a difference in differences. We combined it with another technique called propensity score matching. And in combination, what these techniques try to do is we need to exploit uh, data, variation in data before and once the lockdown had commenced. And we needed a group, like you said, a treatment and control group. So that is a group that was affected by whatever policy we're interested in and a group that arguably wasn't. Um, now, all else considered, and if the assumptions of the model hold, which in our paper we argue and try to show that they do, um, this control group would serve as a good approximation of the counterfactual of the treatment group. And what I mean by that is that what happened to the control group would, would be the outcome of the treatment group in the absence of the national lockdown. Um, hence why we can estimate a causal effect is, you know, causality is just concerned, is primarily concerned with finding this counterfactual. And once we find the counterfactual and compare it to what actually happened, the difference is uh, the causal effect in a nutshell. So okay. in this paper, what we did is we had pre-lockdown data, 2020 quarter one, we had the first three months of lockdown data, 2020 quarter two, and we, to identify treatment and control groups, we exploited industry level variation in legislated permitted to work based what was in the uh, government gazettes, which 
for each lockdown level, if you uh, recall, uh, explicitly mentioned which industries or sub-industries were permitted to work and which weren't. So we cross-referenced these government gazettes with over 150 sub-industries available in the QLFS and using that per lockdown level coded who was and who wasn't permitted to work. So in a nutshell, our treatment group was those who were not permitted to work, i.e. affected by this component of the lockdown policy, and the control group were those who were permitted to work. We also use alternative definitions of the control group. We include people who report being able to work from home or working from home and those in the public sector, but we, uh, we do a bunch of sensitivity and robustness checks to see just how sensitive are our results to these decisions mm. that we make. Um, so yeah, we, we use a few other methods as well, such as individual fixed effects, because a consequence of the pandemic led to the QLFS following this, uh, a subsample of the same people over time, as opposed to a mostly new sample every single quarter. Uh, that helped us with our estimation uh, strategy. And yeah, at the end of the day, we uh, argue that we have managed to estimate the causal effect, not of the entire lockdown itself, which would certainly be a super interesting question. Our interest was that, you know, going from before to during the pandemic and looking at changes in the number of people employed, we can't just attribute that to, oh, that's because of the uh, the lockdown, right? Maybe broadly to the pandemic, but a whole host of events took place at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, the national lockdown took place from the end of March, i.e. the end of the first quarter, pretty much. Countries all around the world were enacting foreign policies like their own lockdowns, national or regional, uh, etc., um, which affects supply chains all around the world and the demand for labor, etc. And at the same time, it's a global pandemic, you know, that affects yes. both producers and consumers' uh, behavior, which affects the labor market as well. We, we ideally wanted to know how much of the 2.2 million job loss that we experienced here in the short term, how much of that was directly attributable to South Africa's lockdown, as opposed to this host of other pandemic-related factors. We couldn't do that, but what we could do is we could isolate the effect of a core component of South Africa's lockdown, which was the component that said who could and could not work, basically. Okay. So yeah, I think in a nutshell, I hope that makes sense. Yes, definitely. And uh, I think it's it's good to be clear because it's it's easy for to be misleading if we hear the word causality. It's so I think it is important to emphasize what what it actually means. But my big question now then is, should we be concerned? What did you find in your research? And what role did this core component of the national lockdown have on our unemployment? Right, yeah. Um, so it had a big role. Um, we, we estimate uh, a causal effect of about eight percentage points, which uh, can, in, in full completeness, can be interpreted as this core component of the lockdown policy decreased the probability of being employed, of having a job during the lockdown by eight percentage points for those who were not permitted to work relative to the control group. So that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> in a nutshell, what that means is we, we can translate that estimate, uh, which I think is really important for people to understand because of course, um, you know, we'd expect a negative effect. We'd expect a part of the lockdown policy like this to negatively affect uh, jobs. But we translate this eight percentage point uh, I won't go into details about the calculation, but we can translate it into basically accounting for just under 600,000 uh, job loss uh, or changes, uh, a reduction in net employment, so to speak. 
So 600,000 out of 2.2 million, the total amount of uh, fewer people employed, translates to about just over a quarter, about 26% of that total job loss. So essentially what our results show is that a quarter of the job loss can be directly attributed to not the entire lockdown, but this core component of the lockdown, which restricted people and some workers to work and others not. Um, and what that suggests is that the majority of job loss, about three in every four jobs lost, uh, can be attributed to other factors. That can yeah. be other factors relating to the pandemic or other factors relating to the lockdown policy like curfews or travel bans. Uh, we can't, in this design, we can't isolate those, but we can isolate this uh, specific component. Okay, so when you looked at this, did you find that it played any role in affecting different groups of workers? Yeah, absolutely. One of our primary findings across the NIDS-CRAM studies, but also using this data, was that we see significant variation in uh, the distribution of job loss um, across different groups of workers. So just descriptively, before getting into any uh, sort of causal effects, um, looking at the burden of job loss, so to speak, and we see that, for instance, geographically, I mean, we can look at this across, you know, any group of interest, uh, and we do here, but we generally find that the distribution of job loss was uh, disproportionately affected workers who are already in precarious positions in the labor market, who are already vulnerable, which isn't so surprising. Again, uh, some estimates here are that geographically, three provinces, Gauteng, Kuzunu uh, Natal, and Western Cape account for about nearly two thirds, two in every three job losses, about 1.4 million, which isn't unexpected given, you know, they account for the majority of employment in the country. Uh, Gauteng alone, though, accounted for uh, 30% of total loss. So one in, nearly one in every three jobs loss for one province is quite astounding, even accounting for their share of national employment. Oh. Uh, relatively, though, it was actually the Northern Cape Free State and Limpopo who, who experienced the largest relative reductions in percentage terms um, of employment. Uh, in the Northern Cape, uh, nearly one in every four workers lost their jobs. Um, oh. Yeah, and we can look, we, we do some analysis in the paper looking at like some district level stuff, um, noting that Ethikweni and Pazunu Natal experienced the largest contraction, but on the other hand, experienced the largest uh, recovery by the end of the year. Uh, of the jobs lost, for instance, uh, in Ethikweni, uh, from quarter one to quarter two, by the end of the year, they had recovered about 60% of those lost jobs, which is the highest wow. still, you know, we want it to be larger, but it's the highest by far across the districts. And then just by some demographics, um, yeah, some notable for us uh, findings were that uh, the youth, those aged uh, younger than uh, 35 years, as per our definition, accounted for half, uh, one in every two jobs lost, despite only representing a third of workers in the labor market. I think it's like when one considers how disproportionate different groups were affected, um, I think there are two key variables or measures that one should consider. And that is, the first is, well, what was their employment share? Uh, what was their share of employment, of national employment prior to the pandemic? And two, what was their, the group's specific share of employment change over the period? So how many of the jobs lost, how many did that group account for? So for instance, the youth, 50% uh, of jobs lost were those amongst the youth, but they only represent um, a third of those in the labor market before. Similarly, those with uh, less than a metric uh, they accounted, well, with a metric or less, accounted for 70% of jobs lost, but they only represent 45% of workers. The informal sector, um, they represent 50% of jobs lost, but they only represent 27% uh, 
um, of workers. Um, and lastly, I guess almost all jobs last were in the private sector, about 95%. And then it seems like, this is just descriptive evidence, but it seems like union trade union membership might have played some sort of protective role. Um, almost all jobs last were amongst union non-members, which okay. I think could be an interesting study in and of its own. But Definitely. yeah, we didn't look into that. So going into causality, how might this causal effect of eight percentage points in the reduction in the probability of employment, how might that differ across different groups of workers? We, we considered, we interacted our model in a way which allowed us to investigate such heterogeneous effects, as we put it, across select vulnerable groups. And basically what we found is an exceptionally high effect amongst informal sector workers. Um, specifically, we found that uh, actually for two subgroups, uh, workers in urban areas and informal sector workers, but I'm going to focus on the latter because it was really large. Um, we found that the effect was about 22, nearly 23 percentage points uh, in a reduction in the probability of employment. Long story short, that's an almost three times larger effect than the average effect on jobs in the economy. Wow. And I think this is super concerning because basically it suggests that informal sector work was a key determinant into losing your job or not be having a job in the lockdown period and in you know targeting of government relief efforts to the informal sector just by definition is a challenge in and of itself just yes. because the group is you know by definition difficult to target so that was a, a definite uh, notable finding for me definitely so i think it's it's very interesting that you sort of touch on this informal sector and i think a large proportion of people that were affected it also depended on their access to internet, just given the digital nature of lockdown living and um, lockdown work. And what's very interesting then is when we look at how restrictions were lifted after the lockdown and how some of these areas recovered more than others, or some groups recovered more than others, do we have any more information in terms of the underlying characteristics of what helped certain groups of people recover better or faster than others? Yes, yeah, we do. We, we have the data to look at it. And we've seen that the recovery has been notable, but only partial and definitely very uneven. We didn't include, we didn't focus on recovery in this paper. In this paper, we just focused on the short-term effects from quarter yes. one to quarter two. Um, but the data is there and the analysis is there. Um, I would be surprised if someone hasn't explicitly focused on recovery. But of the work we've done, which hasn't been published, uh, we can say broadly that, you know, we initially lost about 2.2 million jobs. By the end of the year, we gained back about 800,000. So we're still, so notable, but we're still about uh, 1.4 million jobs uh, less than what we had prior to the pandemic. Yes. Wow. And more so, the, of those 800,000 jobs that we gained back, um, like you alluded to, the distribution thereof has been uneven. Mm. Um, and I'm just going to emphasize again, the informal sector is, is lagging behind. Um, only about a third of jobs uh, that were lost in the informal sector have been gained back uh, oh. in contrast to the formal sector. And it's, it's concerning because one might expect, uh, perhaps naively, but, but one might expect that jobs in the informal sector have low barriers to, to entry and exit. So at least for those who were previously employed in the informal sector. So we, we, some of us expected that, you know, once the economy opened up significantly, which it did by when it was level one, you know, towards in the second half of the year, 
we expected that the majority of jobs lost in the informal sector would become would uh, would return, but they haven't. They just haven't, and. Uh, we suspect that this is largely due to, of course, the formal and informal sector aren't mutually exclusive, right? They're mm. interdependent on one another. For instance, one might have a job in the formal sector, most likely in South Africa, where 75% of employment is in the formal sector. Um, one has a job and earns an income from the formal sector and perhaps return home where, or, or on the way home, passing by some informal sector activities and spend their income there and vice versa, of course. Yes. So... Perhaps one partial reason why recovery in the informal sector is lagging is because of the impartial, uh, well, not impartial, but partial recovery in the formal sector itself. But to be honest, these are these are just hypotheses. Uh, mm. The data is there for anyone to sort of investigate, but I know that a lot of uh, really cool people are doing some great work. So yeah, we'll just be on the lookout. Definitely. We look forward to hearing more about that as it unfolds. But still, this research is very insightful and I'm sure it will be adding much value to policymakers. I know you do say it is a working paper and there might be a few little minor edits, but despite that, I think it's really, really great. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts, though, regarding how your findings from your paper could be useful in the following areas. With the potential of a third wave looming, should we impose another lockdown? This is purely economically speaking. And how resilient would our labor market be? Well, um, yeah, I mean, hypotheses. I, I know you said we should speak about this just from an, uh, yeah, I know you said we should uh, speak about this from an economics perspective, but I feel like we, I feel like, you know, pandemic economics, we can't uh, separate <laughs> or, or treat health policy mutually exclusively, you know, from economic policy. I mean, I'm an epidemiologist, um, so I, I don't believe I'm in any, even after this research, I don't think I'm in any position to say whether or not we should go into a lockdown of whatever level or not. How, However, you know, as, as policymakers and, and government has generally been throughout the pandemic, um, the focus hasn't been on uh, either, you know, choose health or choose the economy. You know, we know they're, they're not mutually of exclusive, they're interdependent. And the focus, as expressed by the president several times, has been, um, you know, we're trying to save lives and livelihoods, um, which I completely agree with. And I think that can be a of course, a super tricky balancing act. Mm. Um, but arguably, I think in a nutshell, economic, any economic policy, including lockdowns, uh, ought to follow the, traje- the trajectory of the pandemic and ought to respond accordingly, um, both in terms of uh, just how quickly a lockdown per se is implemented and also the stringency of that lockdown. Um, and if any activity is restricted, uh, such as people's ability to work and earn a livelihood. Um, if any of that is put at stake, uh, arguably government ought to uh, implement some sort of targeted relief efforts to compensate anyone for their loss. Uh, perhaps we can't do that fully, but at least partially. And of course, this was the, the priority in the beginning of the pandemic was, okay, cool, who, who has been most affected? And how can we ensure that they, they do okay, you know, that they will be okay um, around the world? Um, the goal was to target and identify affected groups and prov- provide relief accordingly. So, you know, the, the terrorist policy um, financed through the UIF, so one can consider it to be social insurance, but, but in a nutshell, I guess it's a, a wage subsidy, right? It just, it's a policy that pays for a proportion of firms' uh, wage bill. Um, if that policy going forward might be extended 
if a lockdown is considered and certain industries are affected, perhaps a restricted TERS policy ought to be plausible. Uh, where, and what I mean by that is TERS would only be applicable to the affected industries, as it has been, you know, uh, as the uh, different levels of lockdown have been introduced over the last few months. Um, there hasn't been any work as of yet on the, on, on the causal effect of TERS on job retention. Uh, it is something we're hoping to do soon, um, data dependent though. So yeah, I think also when thinking about what industries and what workers and what individuals are affected, one needs to think about supply chains. I feel like my takeaway here is nothing is mutually exclusive. Yes. <laughs> no industry operates in isolation, you know, no man is an island. Um, so uh, one would need to consider uh, these knock-on effects. It's a lot to consider. It must be difficult. Definitely. Um, I, I do not envy policymakers right now, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, yeah, you asked just how resilient would our labor market be? Well, if anything, this research has shown that even just this one part, this one component of a lockdown has had a significant influence on the number of people who had jobs. Um, 600,000 people, um, that's yeah, not an insignificant amount of people. Um, that's nearly the amount of total jobs lost in the global financial crisis of 2008. Um, so mm -hmm. it's not something to have taken lightly. Yes, however, in our research, we did consider the most stringent lockdown levels. Uh, we considered levels five, four, and three in the data. Uh, collectively. But we did find some evidence which suggested that, as expected, most, the more stringent the lockdown, the, the uh, larger the effect. Um, so, yeah, again, I don't think I'm in any position to say whether or not we should go into lockdown and what level that ought to be. But as long as the focus is on balancing saving lives and saving livelihoods and providing uh, adequate and appropriate policy to those affected, um, what else can we do? Definitely. And I think uh, there's, we cannot ignore the fact that health comes first and we definitely need to prioritize limiting the spread of these unknown strains, especially mm. depending on the information we find out about the vaccines and how effective they can be with different strains. What I am trying to get my head around, though, is if another knock hits us, it's a bit, it's a bit like the diminishing returns argument. Will the next one be as bad as the first? I'd like to think not. But as you say, our... Uh, sort of social grants come into place. And I know there has been a lot of discussion about the basic income grant, which there was discussion about that coming into play. Yes, absolutely. I'm with you. I, I agree that I, I, would, I would think, it's not, not based on any hard evidence, but I would think that if a uh, similarly uh, stringent lockdown were implemented again in response to like a third wave, for example, um, we wouldn't experience the uh, magnitude of job loss that we did before. Um, because again, at the same time, a host of other events were happening at the same time, governments around the world enacting lockdowns themselves. We know that mm -hmm. the South African labor market and economy as a whole is quite sensitive to external shocks. Um, whereas this time, you know, governments are at different paces altogether with respect to vaccination rollouts um, and uh, different variants of the virus, et cetera. So a, a whole batch of factors to consider as always. And yes, I, I would agree with you that I'd, I think the, and it's based on some work we've done previously using the NIDS-CRAM data and, and some work we're continuously doing is the COVID-19 social relief of distress grant was, I believe, a super important uh, uh, means of income relief to largely poor households. Um, of course, uh, it filled a really important gap that was often critiqued of our relatively comprehensive social assistance net, 
and um, you know the first grant in the system in post-apartheid South Africa at least to target the unemployed working aged who otherwise had no form of direct relief from government we know that you know uh, uh, close to 100% of all grants are distributed to children the elderly and the disabled in low-income households and we know that they're relatively well targeted that they typically do go to those who need it um, largely at least so so this grant is distinct in the system it was the first to target the unemployed um, many of who uh, millions brought into the system in the span of just a few months. Actually, speaking about um, job loss, 2.2 million jobs lost uh, in, from the first to the second quarter, equating to about 10 years worth of job creation lost. Uh, on the flip side of the coin, um, we gained in the space of a few months about 6 million new social grant recipients, specifically brought in through this new COVID grant, which, is, which exceeds the growth of the grant system in the last decade as well. Um, and yes, that in itself is compelling, but it also speaks to a, at least from my perspective, a really large group that has required some sort of support for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, an important question I think would be, uh, is that has this grant aided the recovery of the economy, the labor market? Has it sought to empower people to allow them to engage and participate in the labor market as opposed to the counterfactual, you know? We know there's some evidence now uh, using the Ned's Graham data that we've done that shows that the grant, it seems to have helped reduce both poverty and inequality, uh, poverty by 5%, two percentage points equivalent, uh, inequality uh, between two and 5%, depending on the measure used, which is again, not unexpected, but both inequality and poverty remain high, um, even after this grant has been introduced, which perhaps speaks to the limit uh, of the social grant system in combating these two characteristics of uh, the South African economy. But um, yeah, I think uh, think it's an important question to know whether the grant has aided the labor market recovery and hopefully there'll be some evidence out on that soon. Definitely, I think time will tell. And given the pressure our government is under regarding loans and the fiscal sustainability, I think we really need to get the best bang for buck in all regards. So as soon as we get this data and that research out, I think it will really help us go in the right direction. Thank you, Tim. It has really been a pleasure having you with us on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much for having me, first of all. I, I really enjoyed it and hope to do it again in the future. Um, I guess as a, a final point, I'd like to say that uh, from what I've learned, ultimately, now might not be a time for trying to return to some normalcy uh, as we once knew it. Um, But rather, how can we build back a better, more resilient labor market and social protection system and economy for all? I believe the pandemic has not exposed because we were aware of the extreme levels of socioeconomic inequality in the country and economy, but has just highlighted them. And I also believe we were somewhat fortunate in the beginning of the, uh, the onset of the pandemic, in that we already had a relatively comprehensive social protection system in place. So we had an avenue to direct resources to those who needed it most. Um, however, of course, like we just spoke about, the pandemic exposed, well not exposed, but highlighted a large hole in the safety net, right? The unemployed working age people weren't covered. Um, So I would hope that this would be an opportunity to build back better. I'm grateful to have a government that was quick 
to uh, respond to the pandemic and implement these policies accordingly, despite initial inefficiencies in some areas, some of which still persist, um, of course, which can't be condoned. But most of these measures additionally have been temporary in nature, which, for, which is for obvious reasons. But I would hope that we are considering uh, just ideas about just how we can use these policies to learn lessons from them and permanently adjust the structure of uh, our social protection and labor uh, social protection system and labor market accordingly. Um, we spoke about a basic income grant earlier. Um, I think someone really needs to, perhaps there's research out there that I'm just not aware of, but someone really needs to run the numbers mm. on not just considering how much it will cost and how it can be financed, but also considering just the benefits of large groups of individuals receiving money and injecting that money back into the economy through spending and hopefully saving. Um, I know the COVID grant came to an end last month and I believe the presidency is currently considering some sort of extension, uh, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Ultimately, it's not about returning back to once what we once knew, that, that yes. wasn't enough. We need to build back better. Yes. And I think the labor market does take longer to recover than the economy in general. And I think all things considered, given the uncertainty at the time, I am also very pleased with, you know, the way things have panned out in many ways. So thank you yeah, very absolutely. much. It has really been fun chatting to you and um, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you also to our listeners. And for those of you wanting to learn more about Tim's research, please follow the links below. You will see there will be links to the paper itself as well as a webinar Tim recently did. Thank you and please remember to subscribe to our social media channels. This is your host, Margot G from the OSA podcast series. Till next time.